0: Welcome to this Julie's Bicycle podcast, for more information visit our website juliesbicycle.com It's funny I was in COP with George and Bristol's presence there was extraordinary um, uh, for a number of reasons and so I do a lot of presentations in the city about the Green Capital Partnership and um, I'm not going to do a presentation this morning about the Green Capital Partnership um, but my colleague Vicky is here, put your hand up Vicky, yeah. Yeah. If you, any of you that don't know her, um, and myself will be around for the rest of the day so if you do want to know any of that sort of background that George has hinted at around the partnership then come and ask us about it or look online but I was really pleased to be asked to speak today because it just allowed me to explore another part of my brain. Yep, and um, this will or won't prove useful, but it is in the spirit of a provocation and just a few thoughts. You know, a thousand words in 10 minutes, you can't say very much. Um, but uh, if I start from this place, and I must just put my glasses on, otherwise I won't be able to read it to you, um, it, which is that actually I started life as a visual arts curator. Um, and so I spent the first, I don't know, seven, eight years of my life managing galleries. And then you quickly become a manager. And if you do that in the north of England, as I did, you quickly got involved in the 90s in the fact that actually culturally-led regeneration, we used to call it, that's what this is, that's what we're sitting in, yeah, um, became um, something that was very important to the cultural sector. And as I went up the, um, the inevitable management chain, which for good or bad reasons, I was privileged enough to do quite quickly, um, I, I ended up really getting involved in the role of culture in cities and you stop being a visual arts curator and you start being involved in the role of culture in cities. And then when I um, got very involved in the regional development agenda, which in the north of England played out entirely differently to the way it does in the south, as in it was much more potent, um, I spent seven years as Chief Executive of Yorkshire Culture, which was an organisation as part of the RDA, which really um, triumphed this role of culture in transforming place. And you've heard a lot about that today. And Bristol and, and Ali's work at the Tobacco Factory, Ali and George's work at the Tobacco Factory, is as good an example as you will find of that anywhere. Yep. My other favourite example, and it's because it's the one I was involved in, is actually Hartlepool, which none of you will know. Yep. But for a while there had an MP called Peter Mandelson and an extraordinary local government that meant that we gener- regenerated that city with huge amounts of... Um, investment in culture uh, in a a relatively small town in a way that was utterly transformational and taught me a lot about social justice. Then I went to Australia um, and um, ended up working for one of Melbourne's local governments, really as a director of city futures. So I transformed that knowledge about culture and regeneration and cities into thinking, actually, what at local government level can you do with that stuff? And then a couple of years as chief executive of a very large NGO in Australia called Greening Australia. I'm only telling you that story because the thing I want to do is tell you a little story for the next five minutes, um, and to be somewhat the protagonist in it, but to do that with a huge amount of humility, and also just to say that um, I think I've still done something which is a little bit unusual, which is actually spend um, a lot of my life. I still chair one of the major arts organisations in the city, Cirque Media. I'm on the board of others, etc., etc. So arts is really still my life, but I've happened to also become a professional in this city's sustainability agenda. There aren't too many of us around, actually. And so I do sit in both camps quite curiously, it's certainly curious to me. So there's something here about my commitment um, and celebration of change at city scale, and George hinted at why the partnership might be important around that, and of an opportunity to do things differently. Um, So I'm just gonna share a few um, learnings about that. I think it can be really difficult when we're talking about sustainability and green agendas not to slip into a set of platitudes. You will have to decide as you go through the day and you listen to me and other speakers whether we do that. Um, And I've often heard myself say in sustainability forums that poetry is the most powerful tool that we have. Um, And I always say it and then go, I only half know what I mean by that. But you know when you believe something, Um, and, somehow or other, my belief in that gets deeper um, all the time. So there isn't enough time today to talk about specific projects. You might have thought I was going to talk about the wonderful art projects that happened last year. Other colleagues will do that. Um, uh, And uh, I know that I'm searching to tell you a little bit of a story one of those stories might be actually that I finally found time, years after all you lot did it, um, but because I was on the other side of the world a bit, to go to Bilbao last year, which was meant to be the global example, of course, of culturally-led regeneration. And I actually spent a few days there thinking it was um, a, a, a pretty sorry city, actually, um, and the, the, the Guggenheim um, had created a city that was struggling to keep up. Yeah. Uh, something interesting and reflective about There was a discordancy in it. Um, I've also was warned by the Judy's Bicycle team that um, they get a bit tired of people coming along saying what the arts can do is be a funky way of telling, pe- funky way of telling people about why you need to green your buildings and all that stuff so, yeah, so we're not going to do that. That'll be a theme through the day. It obviously has some truth to it so I'm not denying it but I'm not going to spend my time doing that. Um, so there is some other stuff that I think um, it, it, uh, none of us really struggle with but we make quite heavy weather with. Um, And why do we make heavy weather of it? And it's because there's one thing about being human. Um, And it's because of all the complexities that we celebrate about being human. And I suppose that's where this notion of why poetry might be a most powerful tool is something that really interests me. So I'm just gonna run through three things that we talk about a lot when we talk about sustainability. One of those is behavior change. Yep, I have some sort of bête noir terms. I, I hate this phrase, behavior change. But the other morning I was listening to a Radio 4 conversation, and I'm sorry I couldn't Google quickly enough his name, but the outgoing um, leader of the World AIDS Foundation. Uh, who happened to have started life as an immunologist and a scientist and he reflected for me very powerfully something that I hear a lot in this sector, um, that uh, he thought in the first part of his praer- career, he's a scientist, empiricism, all of that stuff we know and get challenged by, um, white swan, black swan, um, that's poetry. Uh, it, it, he said, um, you know, I came into this game and I thought, I'm a scientist, I'll prove it. So he proved about Ebola, he proved about the fact that AIDS is not a gay disease, it's actually a, um, a, a disease of um, ignorance. And, it's a, you know, and he said, if I prove it, tell people how the solutions are, then the solutions will come. Yep. Um, and of course, uh, he thought that was a very straightforward logic. He said to me I- in this interview, and, it's, I- and it spoke to me very powerfully, he said he quickly realised that there was absolutely no relationship between evidence and solution. Yep. Um, and that actually politics, culture, greed, finance, laziness, hate, indifference, power, then my words, not his, but that's what he was implying, all of these things are much more important. Um, and so if you have this um, conversation about behaviour change um, in the sustainability sector, you might think that evidence, or making something fun, or easier to achieve, or take a few baby steps, and all of those kind of things will make change happen. Um, and I always feel kind of obliged and conflicted around this, and I'm hoping you do too, because this is about communing some thoughts with you, that I can see the merit in it, you know? Use your car less, eat more local, it will make some change. Um, And I absolutely think, and we've done it already this morning, that we need to encourage these things. Um, So, you know, eat local, ride not car, insulate, absolutely. We've mentioned them all already. Um, I hope that would happen, and we have. Of course. So, of course, right? Uh, and we should do it all because it makes both financial and community and carbon sense. But again, you know, let's put ourselves as these kind of complex human beings in the middle of all of this and say, well, actually, all of those things are a mix of judgment and choice. Um, and they're actually probably nearer to the truth. Maybe, maybe it's just me. Maybe you'll agree with this is that what we're actually able to do is make very minor diversions in our behavior from the mainstream that we are around. Um, Even though, you know, um, I I will uh, often arrive at meetings looking like a bike messenger quite deliberately. Yep, you know, it's a statement of who I am that I ride a bike. But it's a minor diversion from the mainstream, really. And so there's something that, for me, we're not quite reaching here that um, I'm obviously hinting might be within the domain of culture in some way. So the science of behaviour change, and there's so much written about it, is as challenging as ever. Um, you can get interested in the unintended consequences of public policy. You may know that congestion charging in London actually led to a 10% increase in cycling. They didn't predict that at all. It's so bloody obvious, isn't it? Yep unintended consequences of policy, of public policy. We know that nudge politics and the whole science of nudging is becoming ever more uh, powerful. But we also know that in this game, there's actually a perverse desire for aut- autocratic leadership. Yep. Just bloody tell us what we've got to do. That'll make the change happen. Yep. Um, uh, and, um, y- you know, that's very interesting as we enter another mayoral election in this particular city, yep, and has study after study around the world, and I really think there needs to be a counter-movement to this, seems to easily conclude that strong leadership is the solution. Yep. I just really wonder in the cultural sector if that's really, yep, what we're buying into They have energy quotas in Chinese cities these days. You know, it's why China will probably be the most efficient country in the world very quickly. That's not the story that we'd have heard 10 years ago. You know what they do? They just turn the power off. Yep, and then you've met your quota. Autocracy could be a good thing, couldn't it? Um, it, There's lots of of inflection and sensitivity in what I'm saying. But we might consider that it's love or desire or opportunity that is far better motivator for change. Love, desire and opportunity, you know, I'm just, I, I reckon that's not just me. And these, of course, are the domain of poetry. And the next little area is innovation, yep, and um, this is, it's so funny. Um, I sit a- around all these cities that I've worked in. Um, you sit in a lot of strategy meetings and the phrase innovation and creativity, innovation and creativity, drives every city. You've got to be unique in your innovation and creativity, yep. Um, it's so unique that every city in the world is saying you've got to be innovative and creative, as if it's a unique thing to say. Yeah. So it doesn't really, I'm going to have to speak really quickly. Right. Um, so um, every arts project I actually think falls into the same trap. You've all written that this is the innovative project or the innovative work or the innovative practice of, quote as well, haven't you? It's a bit like saying for me that you need to eat to live. Um, I'm not sure whether there has ever been a village or a town or a city that has not needed these qualities of innovation. It's also a term that's been increasingly owned by the technology sector, big data, driverless cars, city sensing, rubbish bins that tell you when they need emptying, all in the name of efficiency. I don't mind any of it. It may be a solution to a few things, but it definitely won't be the solution to it. Naomi Klein's book overemphasizes. Everybody's read uh, This Changes Everything piece of literature, yep, good. Um, But uh, um, overemphasizes this in my view, and she reflects on that very serious group of scientists that are quite genuinely inventing carbon hoovers um, to entirely recalibrate the world into a human machine, literally suck the carbon out of the atmosphere. It's very serious, Um, not in my name. Um, And her solution is people power, yes. That's definitely one of the motivations behind the Green Capital Partnership. She has written a kind of literature. I don't think she's written poetry. Um, we can also talk a lot about social innovation and this is actually I think the big driver for me around the partnership itself and I find this interests me much more. Bristol is a genuine hotspot for this, you've already heard it, but street closures and local food growing, re- reintroducing goats onto the streets, yes, um, walking trails, community energy projects, and these are ideas fostered by local locality and interest and put into action. In many cases these are anti-technology, they're slow not fast, they're small not grand and I actually see some real hope in this movement. And this This city is profoundly good at it. Um, And it's a space really where outlier behaviors gradually become the mainstream. You've got to accelerate that. Um, And Bristol actually does have the conditions, it has the intelligence, the wealth, as currently defined, to lead this movement. Um, And art and creativity are natural partners to these things, cities. Really quick, yeah? Um, It it comes back to the COP thing. You'll know that 50% of the world currently live in cities. Within a generation, 75% of the world will live in cities. The whole COP stuff you've heard about. They're the fastest growing evolution of human ingenuity on the planet. There's no question that cities have to be part of the solution. So they're a wonderful lens to look, look uh, look at this stuff through. Um, And um, at a local level, when you're in them, they're fraught, and I don't mean Bristol, actually, I mean globally. Uh, I mean, the big cities that are coming now in Africa and China and India, these things will define the future of humanity, Um, and they will change the world irrevocably. They are doing that. So um, I use this quote a lot, but there's a lovely book that Leo Hollis wrote called Cities Are Good For You. In 1994, a guy called PJ wrote calculated that the world's population were gathered together in one place with the same density as Manhattan, Everyone on earth could live in the former Yugoslavia. Yeah. So today the world's population is a bit bigger, we might need a little bit more wiggle room, and so actually Nicaragua would hold the entire world's population at the density of Manhattan. So therefore living together in a crowded place is clearly not the problem. How we live and how we are allowed to live together is what matters most. That's gotta be a thing for culture. So um, you know, cities have tended to be owned by engineers and architects, Apologies, George. Um, and the prominent discussion has always been about the hard infrastructure. Um, actually, there's a hubris in this uh, of man-made control, how we channel water, design solutions, overcome flooding. Overcome flooding? Yeah. Anybody seen the news recently? Yeah. Um, transport, disease, sanitation. These are fundamentally all the post-industrial le- revolution mindset that we're still in. Yeah. Um, And whilst there's much to celebrate and creativity of it, I recognise that, um, we've also got to allow ourselves to reflect, is that really happening? Are we really achieving anything here at all? And by what means can we provoke, reflect, sideswipe and challenge this orthodoxy? Um, And somewhere for me in there is a talent that poetry uniquely has to juxtapose things and create new insights. Um, I've got to do a quick Theaster Gates' quote, nothing to do with the fact that he was in the city last year, but if if you look at um, somebody that seems to me to be at the forefront artistically of thinking about cities, this lovely thing, he says, let's imagine that the south side of Chicago could be very different. A preacher might imagine that the south side being different by saying, I could grow my church and we could maybe get housing for our pernish- parishioners and make things better. That's very good and that's practical. Or well, there's the mayor who says, these are the tools that I have as mayor. Or the police will say, well, if we had more police, we could help reduce violence. All good, but actually, we need a greater symbolic act than any of these instrumental acts could ever offer. But few people are imagining these great symbolic acts. Um, that's got to be the role of poetry, hasn't it? So this is the polymath space, last paragraph. Um, a recognition that it is only by implying, engaging, colliding, and bringing together a wide variety of ideas that we might make the genuine progress that actually Cop might have given us the foundation for. I'm not a botanist, right? But I, like you, and innately programmed as a human being to enjoy the natural world. I engaged with it in this country for the first four decades in my life and, then, um, and in Europe. Um, and I walked in it and I rode my bike in it a lot and I read about it and I enjoyed it and I began to, began to have some understanding of it, the natural world. Then I went to another place in another part of the world called Australia and I didn't understand it at all. I was profoundly dislocated. Um, and I could not read it, I could not understand the landscape that I was in. There were birds everywhere, there was unspoilt wilderness, Um, there were animals I'd never seen, and an entirely different language smell, tone of landscape. I was baffled by it, actually. Uh, But by good fortune, I started managing bush reserves, um, that means parks, actually, but bush reserves, as we called them over there. Um, And then I took over as uh, CEO of a a larger Australian um, environmental organisation whose prime role was landscape restoration, yep, repairing the, 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 the um, massive uh, desiccation of the Australian landscape done by European settlement. My team of botanists and scientists taught me how to read that landscape. I became more intoxicated by it, still am actually, than by other, other, any other landscape. One day, one of my colleagues urged me down onto my knees and gently revealed a tiny, tiny lily. Yep. Um it's called the chocolate lily. Um, yeah, and if you taste it, it tastes like chocolate. So, I'm not sharing that story to educate you about the Australian landscape. I'm sharing it because it's a story, and I think the real power of it is in the storytelling. Um, and um, as I was reading a biography of Elizabeth Frink this week, uh, she says, You know, art is a voice that should be listened to in every age. Um, thank you very much. Follow us on Twitter at JuliesBicycle Bicycle and visit JuliesBicycle.com for news and resources.